Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal, Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We continue our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser on Hans Urs von Balthasar's The Moment of Christian Witness. Dr. Hauser joined the faculty of DeSales University in 1999 and was promoted to the rank of tenured professor in 2010. He holds a doctoral degree from Marquette University with a specialization in fundamental theology. His book publications include Hans Urs von Balthasar and Protestantism, the ecumenical implications of his theological style. How Balthasar Changed My Mind, co-edited with Larry Chapp, and Hans Urs von Balthasar, A Guide for the Perplexed. He has scholarly articles published in Communio, Nova Edvetera, and the Josephium Journal of Theology. In the moment of Christian witness, Hans Urs von Balthasar seeks to aid all those who are challenged both spiritually and intellectually by the call of Christ and the difficulties faced by a world hostile to Christianity. With a rich and deep spirituality, along with solid biblical exegesis, he counters an age of spiritual fads, self-centered goodisms, and reveals to the reader the origins of all those troubling elements in Christianity which claim that the real Jesus Christ is unknowable, the Gospels as merely the confused reflections of later Christians, and that Christian tradition is a perpetuation of mythology. Balthazar will show that it's only through the embrace of the cross of Christ Jesus that the heart and mind can be illuminated by truth and offer an authentic Christian witness in today's world. We now continue our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser on the moment of Christian witness. For many modern readers of I'll just say in, in a Christian Catholic genre that there will be an author that will tell me what that moment is and mm-hmm. how it's to be navigated, what I'm supposed to do. It's yeah. never clear cut with Balthazar in that for some it, it may seem like he's difficult to read because we're not used to reading the interior he's directing us into mm-hmm. so that we can identify what that decisive moment is, what that mission is for ourselves. I mean, it's it's so much easier when you have somebody else telling you what to do. No, it's true. And that's, it goes back to that individual thing. There's nobody that can tell you, you know, kind of what your mission is, right? That's, that's, you know, that's something has been hidden in Christ from the foundation of the world, so to speak. And one of the Balthazar's favorite things he did, and I think he says somewhere that it was maybe the most important thing that he ever did was leading the exercises. And that's because in leading people through the exercises, he was helping them to discern their mission. 
And for Baltazar, finding out what our mission is, is for the first time coming to understand who we are as persons without having discovered our mission. There's a sense in which we simply don't know ourselves. It'd be so much easier to belong to a tribe yeah. and to say that I got to follow that chief. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, but yes. see, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. kind of particularly for the Christian, I'll even narrow it down and for the Catholic, it's not about belonging to a tribe. I mean, we're right. called to be in the world where we're at, not behind the fortress walls. Right. And because we so desperately want to have yeah. peace, to find that type of sanctuary, maybe because we have family and we're concerned about them, and but that you have to die to that, don't you? I mean, you have to even die to that. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think is actually the good news of, of Baltazar's message. I mean, you can read Baltazar and come away from it feeling really like, oh man, I feel like I'm not a very good Christian. And yeah. <laughs> you can come away kind of depressed. But if you read him carefully, you realize that what he's telling you is actually really, really good news. And it's really joyful. And that's precisely why I wanted to make the point earlier, too, about the fact that it's very clear that for Baltazar, none of this is going to be possible without grace, right? Mm -hmm. And he says elsewhere that Christ would never ask us to do any task that he's not also going to give us the gifts to make sure that we can do them. So you think of the call of Moses, uh, which he mentions in the book. I mean, Moses is a stammering sort of nobody, and God literally has the audacity to ask him to go to the most powerful man in the world and say, hey, by the way, you know, kind of let my people go. How could he possibly say yes to that call? But God assures Moses that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really be the one to do this. You know, you're going to be the vehicle, but I'm going to be the one empowering you to do this, and I'll be with you every step of the way. It's important to remember that. Otherwise, this whole notion that we have this task that only we can fulfill can become super overwhelming because none of us should feel worthy of the task we've been committed to. It's like an honor to actually be given a task by God, if you think about it. If I could just say one other thing I, I was thinking about what I was, when we were talking about this is in America, you know, we, ha we have this obsession both with equality and with identity. And I think the two kind of work against each other. Like all of us are, want to be recognized for who we are on the one hand, but we also all want to be like everybody else. Like there's a lot of pressure on us to look like certain people and talk like certain people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's like standards out there that we all are striving for, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, trying to get rid of our love handles or, you know, kind of whatever. But what's really interesting about the Christian approach to these things is, first of all, coming to understand what one's mission is immediately alleviates us of the need to envy anybody else because they also have a mission from God, which is between them and God. Paul is very good on this. He goes, some people are going to serve really noble purposes. You know, some, some members of the body of Christ are going to be like the eyes and the mouth and other people are going to be like the feet, you know, <laughs> their, their role in the eyes of the world is you know, pretty pathetic compared to this role of, let's say, Bishop Barron or somebody like that, right? Mm -hmm. He's playing this major role in the American church. And then here I am at my little college that nobody knows about in, in eastern Pennsylvania. You know, I could get jealous and be like, man, why can't I be, you know, Robert Barron and, and do all this stuff? But as soon as you realize the mission that you have been given has been given to you by Christ Jesus, 
and it's a mission that nobody else can perform. There's a beautiful prayer by John Henry Newman where he talks about this. Uh, he prays, you know, help me to remember that I've been given a task that nobody else can do. I have a role to fulfill in the body of Christ. And once you come to realize that, it really takes a lot of pressure off of you. You both become part of a thing that's bigger than you. So it kind of gets your attention off yourself. But you can also quit envying and worrying about why you're not like this person. Why am I not as smart as that person? Why am I not as good looking as that person? Why am I not as charismatic as that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think that could be a really liberating message, especially for young people who I think are really caught up, young ladies especially, can get really caught up in the world of social media and they're constantly comparing themselves to other people and feeling really, really bad, bad about themselves. I think helping a young lady find her mission is the best antidote for that. Envy in a, in a real way is it to kind of to feed something that says, I need, I need. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a lot of times we can't even define what it is. And ultimately, that need is to be loved. Yes. Because love satisfies, it satiates, it, they haven't encountered it. They don't know right. how to get it. Yes. I love that person. I love those things. I want that. And then I ultimately, that's, even though we don't use that verbiage, it's the fruitfulness we're trying to grab. And I think for Balthazar, if, if I'm not mistaken, Rodney, I mean, he'll always say, you really want love, you really need love, then gaze on the cross. Yes. You see that in the lives of, say, someone like Teresa of Avila. Yeah. It wasn't until she saw the extent of love in that statue of the scourged Christ. Right. Okay. I, that grace, as you said, something clicks. Yeah. That's how much I'm loved. Has written about Therese mm-hmm. and Elizabeth of the Trinity, these little Carmelites who, yeah. in that awareness of that they are loved, then that's okay. I mean, we don't even have models of that kind of love anymore. I hate to say that. I mean, that's why the gaze has to be turned back to Christ. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's that need that we all have to be noticed and to be recognized for what makes us special, right? Mm-hmm. And then we set about doing all sorts of strange things to get that recognition uh, that, that are probably, you know, very unhealthy and all that stuff, right? Um, but it's, I just think it's one of the most powerful uh, aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that, that each and every one of us was created in Christ Jesus to do a task. Um, and, and how more special can you be than for the creator of the universe to have had you in mind when he created the universe? I mean, that's... <laughs> That's pretty special, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And and it and it and it and then again, it just kind of liberates us from all that kind of self-conscious worrying about what people think about us and, and all that stuff. And and that's of course another big theme of this book um, is that Jesus warned his disciples that they will be detested by the world on account of him. And and the only way you can kind of have the courage to go on being hated, you know, by your fellow human beings is precisely if you put your faith in the love of Christ for you. Because once you have that, the hatred of human beings is is a walk in the park. Yeah. It, you know, I, I can't help but go back to something that we were uh, talking about earlier in the conversation, um, that moment when uh, Ratzinger needed to make the change. Yeah. Um, because sometimes before that that encounter that 
they're realizing your mission because yeah. you're listening, you're in relationship with the one who is directing you. Right. Um, we can fall into the trap, and I know, I, I speak from my experience, maybe it's just me, mm-hmm. but you hear of all the things you need to do, and it, to the extent, even to, it can expand all the way to social missions. Yeah. You know, I'm going to do this because you're still trying to capture the grace yourself. Yeah. But maybe if I become a part of this organization, if I go and fight for this cause, I go do, mm-hmm. do, do a lot of other things Yeah. first. And there are even those who will encourage people, do the good things mm-hmm. before having them encounter Christ Jesus. Is that what he's asking you to do? You can do those causes for so long, but then because you haven't had that encounter, it goes off kilter. That's where the angers come in, yeah. the slide from virtue into snarky vice. And I, yes. I'm not trying to overgeneralize things, but there has to be this paradigm. And I think that's what like a, a Ratzinger and Balthazar, they're always trying to bring you back to the first step. If you miss the yes. first step, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. never going to be in tune. You're not walking with the master. Yeah, and again, it, it being willing to even take your best virtues and your most grandiose plans and be told that that's not what you're going to do. I mean, if you to go back to Ratzinger, I mean, this man is one of the most brilliant men uh, of the 20th century and into the 21st. And he wanted to be an academic. I mean, that's what he had prepared his whole life to be. You know, his dissertation on, on Bonaventure, et cetera. You know, uh, mm-hmm. he was a, a highly qualified academic. And all of a sudden, John Paul II calls him and says, I want you to be the prefect. I don't think there could be probably a worse nightmare for somebody who thinks of themselves as an academic, who, who wants to be in a university setting where there's a free exchange of ideas and a, you know, tossing over these big, heavy theological differences and things like that, to be asked to be the prefect for the congregation, which is really the head of the inquisition we're talking about, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and when John Paul II asked him, he said, no, I don't want to do that. And, mm-hmm. and, but he did it. And then I hear the story that when he found out that he had received the most votes to be the next pope, he began weeping, not tears of joy, but tears of absolute frustration because it's the last thing in the world he wanted to do. He wanted to go back and write. He, he says this in his interview. He says, I, I wanted to finally be done being prefect and go back to my research and my work. Mm-hmm. And now, now he's called to be the head of this dysfunctional organization called the Roman Catholic Church, you know, with the crazy curia and mm-hmm. all of this stuff. But God had plans for Ratzinger that Ratzinger didn't have for Ratzinger, you know? I'm glad you brought up the church. I think where Balthazar, for me anyway, it has helped me so much. In the understanding, and it took a while, it took a little bit of chiseling in my big thick head to to break through of seeing the church as mother, being able to look at and experience the gift of the church, the nurturing, the fruitful, and how the church receives and gives back to us, as opposed to the institutional structure that is being steward by men and women in their various capacities. It's like the banquet table. The church is all the food, all the riches that God wants for us. Surrounding it are those who are either going to open the door and come, come and feast, or those who in the past, over the centuries, 
there have yeah. been the stewards who have said, no, you're closed. The, the church is the, the nurturing, living, breathing encounter with grace. I think we are not used to thinking of it because it hasn't been spoken like that either in a classroom, catechetically, as clearly, or even, you know, now the media uh, at the church is the buildings that you see. Am I overthinking that? No, no, that's absolutely crucial to Balthazar's thought. It was very liberating for me too uh, when I when I first started reading Balthazar on the church. It's kind of interesting that this is one of those things where kind of trad Catholics and progressive Catholics sort of end up agreeing unwittingly that the church is primarily this institution. It's mm-hmm. the sociological, you know, we can understand it through sociological categories. Mm-hmm. Either it's going to be kind of a monarchy where the Pope has a lot of power, or it's going to be a democracy where everybody gets a say or something like that. So we tend to think of the church as moderns. We tend to read everything in kind of big L liberal categories, right? Right. Um, And so the church just becomes another organization run by either good or bad people, depending on what your perspective is. But of course, for Balthazar and for the church, actually, I mean, going all the way back to the church fathers and to the New Testament, the church is first and foremost, the bride of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a subject. It says this very profoundly in the first uh, section of Moment of Christian Witness. He, this, we have to understand the church as a subject. And its archetype is, of course, Mary. And what's beautiful about Mary is the objective holiness and the, uh, the, the objective holiness that is given to her by God and her subjective appropriation of that holiness are one. Mary is ever virgin, you know, immaculate, et cetera, right? But then mm-hmm. Baltasar says, when we get to the church, you know, the institutional church, he talks about the Marian church and the Petrine church. The Marian church is subjectively and objectively holy. The Petrine church is given a charism to keep the church from going off the rails. But the subjectivity of the, any given pope or any given bishop or any given priest or any given Christian, for that matter, is never equal to the objective gift that they've been given. We already see this in Peter, you know, who, who kind of out of one side of his mouth says, we're not going to have, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to ostracize Gentiles for not being circumcised. And then a few weeks later, we find that he's, he's refuses to eat with the Gentiles. He's only eats with the Jews. Mm-hmm. Paul, Paul has to tell him like, Peter, this is unacceptable, right? There's a case where Peter's subjective holiness is not equal to the, his objective ability to say what's right and what's wrong or what's up and what's down. And I think it's very important for Catholics to keep that in mind, because at any given moment in history, we're going to be very, very frustrated by the people who are leading the church, uh, you know, a gaggle of nincompoops, you know, or whatever. And, and of course, you respect the office of these people, but the, the persons themselves can be far, far, far from living up to, to that office. And I think it's, uh, that, I think Balthazar really helps us to appreciate that that's kind of been the way it's been. And the way it's going to be, and we don't put our faith in this particular pope or that particular bishop or this particular priest. We put our faith in Christ and, and, uh, and then the church insofar as the church is the Immaculate Bride of Christ. Yeah, that's the tragedy when there are those who will see the church, the again, I'll, I'll use the term the institutional church. They see the activity that's maybe occurring there, mm-hmm. and they will turn away from it. It's like missing the soul Mm -hmm. of a person. You're not acknowledging the value, the beauty, the everything that's contained within in the soul of the person. Images are failing me because I'm just not as articulate as others in expressing this, but 
you wouldn't turn away from that. You continue to love and receive. Are you frustrated sometimes? Sure. And buoyed and lifted up? Absolutely, on many occasions. But that's why would you turn away from what God has given us in that because of the actions of some others. Yes. I'm not trying to be too simplistic. No, um, no, that's beautiful. That's exactly it. And that, that's that's kind of what Balthazar is, is, is telling us here by sort of holding up Mary and, and the church as, as uh, the Marian church as kind of the paradigm. Um, and then, you know, the, again, the, the institutional church, he has, of course, enormous respect for it, you know, fidelity to the magisterium and all that, all the while recognizing that in terms of its subjective holiness, uh, the institutional church is always going to be a disappointment. There are times in the late Middle Ages where the entire church resided in the bosom of a single saint. Um, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> you're like, wow, <laughs> you know. There's and Dante was, you know, putting popes in 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 the inferno, you know, already in the in the uh, 12th century. So, uh, um, yep. <laughs> so, yeah, well, now that we haven't known. But see, the thing is, if you realize that it doesn't shake you, what does the Christian? We pray and we continue yeah. to love. Yes the danger becomes the division enters in the smoke of, you know, as it's been termed, the smoke of Satan enters in. And when we uh, begin to despair or act out of anger, you either fly or you fight. Yes. And that fight response, a lot of times it becomes really very ugly and the damage that it's done. And it doesn't, doesn't mean you don't say things, but you do it. You speak out of truth and you speak out of love Yes. And you don't try to masquerade that in cute intellectual snarkery. You can call me out on being too if I'm if I'm coming off judgmental or not at all, not at all. No, that's absolutely it. I, I'm 100 percent on board with that. Yes, you may get frustrated. I mean, there are times in in history, in the history where of the church, where saints, I'm sure, Padre Pio probably was terribly frustrated and disappointed by yeah. the mystery of the treatment that he was given. Think of Maximus the Confessor, who almost single-handedly was defending the notion that Christ uh, had two wills uh, in, in the face of all of, of, of Eastern Christendom. I mean, the, the emperor uh, was not on his side, uh, you know, he mm-hmm. had no friends, he had his tongue ripped out. I mean, you know, he single-handedly, he, he refuses, though, to give up on this really, really important uh, aspect of Christology, because he knows that everything, the Chalcedonian faith, everything is in the in the balance there. And uh, he stands up for it. He ends up losing his life for it. Uh, but in hindsight, we now realize that he was right and the world was wrong. Yep. <laughs> you know, and that's the Jerome. I remember there's a scene where Jerome looks out onto, he looks out, uh, you know, onto Christendom or whatever and says, it seems everybody is an Aryan. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Because after the council, you know, after the Nicene council, the overwhelming majority of people left the council still Aryan, you know. Um, well, uh, so it's, it's, it's always been, you know, uh, th- th- these struggles have always been there. And the fact that the church has survived this is, I think, the biggest piece of evidence for me that the church is the true church. Well, and that's the mystery, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's the part of it is that we don't know why the Father will allow certain things. And right. guess what? Like Our Lady, sometimes you have to surrender even understanding Finding in the temple, she goes to her son. I don't, I, we don't understand. Well, sometimes yeah. you're just not going to. We've lost sight sometimes, I think, of the fact that the Father allows all things. 
He's allowing yeah. this. Yes, yes. He allowed his son to be crucified. So what are we being called to do in this moment? And again, we look back at those saints. I mean, I couldn't help but think of, you know, you were talking about Maximus. I think of someone yeah. as little as Joan of Arc. Yeah, oh my goodness. Totally yeah. got thrown under the bus. By the church. <laughs> yeah, by the church. <laughs> yeah. And it would take her mother after her death petitioning over and over and over again yeah. for a quarter of a century. But... Look at the fruitfulness for the church and for the witness for the world. And Jones and Maximus and all of them, because of that faith, because of the belief, the anchoring, they're, they're in eternity. We are short-sighted if we don't, don't appreciate eternity. So there are basic things that we're called to do. And some of those things are trust and to be obedient but that's another word that, you know, we'll probably have to break open at another time. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. But yeah. It, so when he talks about church, I think he is always lays such a foundational work anchored in the scriptures. Yes. He's so yes. steeped there, isn't he? And that's what's beautiful about that opening chapter, because he's kind of saying, hey, in case anybody thinks that martyrdom is not sort of the norm for Christian discipleship, let me quote some Bible verses to you, yeah, <laughs> and and they're just everywhere. Like he pulls from every single tradition in the New Testament: the Johannine, the Pauline, the the Gospels. I mean, if you think there's a place where this is not the norm, uh, he's gonna he's gonna disabuse you of that notion in a hurry. Yeah, I can't imagine um, what it must have been like to try to argue a, a point with Balthazar, because yeah. I mean, it must have been. From what I understand in his personality, I mean, he was a very tender soul, really. Yes. In, in the way he would speak, that in a childlike type of joy in the discovery of the world. I, mm-hmm. in, do you think that's yeah. an overstatement? No, not at all. Um, the other thing that I, 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 especially when he was doing, say, doing the exercises or, or celebrating mass or whatever, people would say that it was almost as if you could have put a tape recorder up there so little did he insert himself into the situation. He, he literally just disappeared into what he was doing. You know, I thought, man, if I were as smart as Baltazar, my ego would be so big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'd have to get a separate seat on the plane for it, you know, or something like that. But, but apparently with all of the knowledge that he had, and he, of course, he knew he was smart. I mean, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not, you know, uh, uh, falsely humble. He had no ego, apparently. He, he you know. He was, uh, he was at a conference, uh, uh, David L. Schindler threw a conference in a Catholic university many years ago now, and that's when Baltazar went to Disneyland, actually, when he mm-hmm. came to the United States. The conference was going on, and all these papers were being given in Baltazar's honor. Baltazar just disappeared, and, and, and Dave couldn't find him. And finally, he went to the hotel across the street and found Baltazar sitting in the lobby of the hotel over there. Mm-hmm. And he said... He said, you know, Father von Balthasar, you know, uh, there's a conference over here, you know, honoring your work or whatever. He says, it's all so boring. <laughs> <laughs> so he hated the the attention, you know, he dated He was just like, you know. Yeah, I think that in another conversation, maybe we could talk about just the people that he had in his life that kind of, I think, helped anchor him. And one of those yeah. was uh, many people have heard of Adrienne von Speyer. Absolutely, yes. But I mean, because yeah. this is a woman who worked all day, had a family, friends, and she's running by, she's busy, busy, busy doing, right. as well as spending time in prayer 20 minutes a day, as it yeah. said, with Father von Balthasar. And yeah. sometimes she'd just look at him, you know, he would be writing something long and 
and expounding on a point, and she would just look at him and say, you're thinking too much. Just yeah. keep it simple. And he valued that type of honesty towards yes. him, I think. Yeah, she, I th- she told him one time, I think that we can thank her for these little books that he wrote, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, he, he was writing tomes for, for um, academics in the 40s and 50s. You know, his work is, is extremely difficult and, and it's about very big stuff, you know, Fichte and Schelling and Hegel and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He's, got, he's mastered the entire Western tradition. And uh, one time she told him, she goes, I think you write for the little man that lives in your head. She said, <laughs> she said you need to get out and meet some real people. <laughs> yeah. And, and I love that. And he was humble enough that he took his lumps. And I think he tried to, tried to then, uh, you know, write some of these, uh, the, the primer for Unsettled Layman, you know, et cetera, et cetera, New Elucidations. Those kind of little works were mm-hmm. addressed as best he could to, to ordinary people. And uh, that I just I I love that 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 he that I think his first desire was to save the faith to preserve the faith for the simple in the pew, and that's what he got frustrated later in life with some of the theologians that were coming out of the Concilium school. He didn't feel like they were doing theology for the average Christian, and it's interesting. I mean, the the Communio school was started, you know, by Ratzinger and De Lubach and Balthasar, and, and then Wojtyla eventually got involved with a Polish edition. If you think about every single one of those men never held an academic position. Hmm. They were all men of the church, even though they were trained to, to be academics. They all ended up getting pulled into the service of the church. And it's a very ungratifying job if you're an intellectual because your job as a, as a churchman is to make sure that the faith that's been handed down gets handed down faithfully. And a lot of that faith is not very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not very popular, especially in the academy. And so to be a pope or to be a prefect for the doctrine, uh, uh, you know, the congregation, or to be the head of the International Theological Commission, for instance, or whatever, those are jobs that academics look down on because you're just a, you know, you're just a shill for the, the, uh, the church. And, uh, and yet these, these guys didn't let that keep them from doing it because that was what they were about, serving the church. It always seemed to me that in reading St. John Paul's work, or for me, Pope Benedict XVI and his writings and his audiences, I think have such, I hope there are doctoral students who are just working on breaking open how he envisioned catechesis yeah, yeah, because yeah. he did it so beautifully. He never right. talked down to us. He he only pointed us towards the stars. But in universities, I I know because I sat in classrooms in the 90s, it seemed as though as we were taught that they had certain agendas. Mm -hmm. And yet when you read them, you don't see the agenda. You just see the quest. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I mean, I think what kind of began to happen, it seems to me, in the the late 60s especially um, and on, is somehow theologians saw their job as sort of holding the institutional church's feet to the fire in order to get the institutional church to be more just to marginalized types, you know, women Mm -hmm. and, you know, et cetera. Right. And so it became this almost Marxist analysis of the church as the church is this status quo organization with power, trying to keep power from the people. And the theologian's job is to speak in behalf of the people against the church. 
and again, that's that totally sociological understanding of the church that pit theologians against the church. And, and that's something that Balthazar and Ratzinger and, and John Paul II and many others rejected from the outset. That's where I think the split really started to happen between the two schools of thought that were originally, I think, very, very close together. And, mm-hmm. and in fairness to Rahner, he was always a, a man of the church. When, um, when Hans Kuhn wrote his book, uh, Denying the Infallibility of the Pope, Rahner said, I will now dialogue with Hans Kuhn as if he is a Protestant. And that's, a, that's you know, he, he wasn't even talking smack. You know, that, that was just, he was just being honest like that. You cannot be a Catholic and not believe in the infallibility of the Pope. It's a dogma. So mm-hmm. you've just stepped outside of the realms of Catholicism. And, you know, again, Rahner kept it together. He, there are ambiguous passages here and there, but he was to the end a man of the church. And unfortunately, it was the generation after him, I think, where that, that just quit being the case in, in a lot of cases. This concludes part two of our conversation with Dr. Rodney Hauser, discussing Hansers von Balthasar's The Moment of Christian Witness. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit bonbalthazar.com. There, too, you can also access numerous audio excerpts from this book, along with others in the Balthazar Library. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will consider subscribing to this podcast and liking it on whatever platform you may be hearing it on. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about bonbalthazar.com and join us for the next episode of Balthazar beauty, goodness, truth.